You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15? If you use a Bible app, you can just uh, go there. If you use a paper Bible, just turn with me to Romans 15. Romans, of course, so it comes, you know, New Testament, you got the guys' names, right? The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then the book of Acts, and then right after that comes Romans. So we've been studying the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome for the past several weeks and months. We're finishing up. We've got, after today, we've got two more studies in Romans, then we're going to be doing an Advent series, and then in the new year, we're going to be doing a really cool series that I've been looking forward to for a long time about the prophets. So we're going to be talking about the prophets in the new year, so you can look forward to that. But today, we are in Romans chapter 15 as we come near the end of the book of Romans. We've called the series Saving Grace because that's what we've been studying. We've been studying about the gospel. That's what the book of Romans is all about. And so here at the end of Romans, Paul is now bringing us some application in light of the gospel. So let's read our text this morning, which begins in Romans 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks to us, that it has a message for us in whatever time, whatever place we find ourselves in. So, Lord, we come to your word this morning knowing that you desire to speak to us. And so, Lord, we desire to have receptive hearts. We ask, Lord, that you would speak and that we would listen, that we would hear, and that we would not just be hearers of it, but we would be doers of your word. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. They had left their jobs. They had left their homes. They were following this teacher named Jesus. And maybe you've heard of the 12 disciples, but did you know there was also another group that the Bible tells us about, a bigger group? They were called the 72. So along with Jesus' 12 closest disciples, we read about this other group called the 72, who were also disciples of Jesus, who also followed him from village to village and town to town. They watched him heal the sick, and they watched him teach the word and preach the gospel. And in Luke chapter 10, the Gospel of Luke chapter 10, we see that after years, months, and and probably about two years of following Jesus and watching him teach and minister to people, Jesus now turns first to the 12, but then to the 72. And he tells them, all the stuff that you guys have seen me do, you've been watching me do over this last year and a half, two years, now it's your turn. I'm sending you, and you're going to go into the surrounding towns and villages, and you're going to do the same things that you've seen me do over these last several months and years. And so Jesus sent them out, and after some time, they returned, and Jesus asked them, so how did it go? And they had gone into the towns. They had preached the gospel, and they said, oh, Jesus, it was incredible. And here's what they said. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. They're high-fiving each other. They're all excited, and Jesus kind of says, Hey, before you get too excited, let me just say this. Yes, I have given you power, but here's the thing. Nevertheless, he says, do not rejoice in the fact that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, why did Jesus say that? Here's why. 
Because throughout his time with his disciples, over and over, he had to kind of correct them, direct them in a way. You see, he needed to challenge the way that they thought about power, the way that they thought about strength, the way they thought about authority. He wanted to give them a new way of thinking about power. You know, Jesus himself was incredibly powerful. His disciples had seen that, had seen that power at work in his life. But here's the thing that Jesus wants to bring their attention to now. He says, look at how I use my power. I don't use my power to domineer over other people. I don't use my power to pat myself on the back and celebrate how powerful I am. But I use my power to help people and to serve people and to lift people up. One time, Jesus had been with his disciples in a certain village. And the people in that village were very rude to Jesus and his disciples, and they treated them very badly. And the disciples came up to Jesus, and they said, Jesus, we should use your power to call down fire from heaven and teach these people a lesson and burn them up. And Jesus says, no, you still don't get it, do you? That's not the way I use my power. Yes, I have power, but that's not how I use it. See, the problem with the 72 when they came back, and they were so excited that the spirits were subject to them, and Jesus kind of tempered them, the reason was they were excited about the wrong thing. You see, they weren't excited about helping people. They didn't come back and say, wow, Lord, it was great because we went out and we were able to use your power in order to help so many people. We were able to liberate people and lift them up and see healing happen in their lives and see restoration happen in their lives. No, all they're excited about is that they are now more powerful than demons. And Jesus gently corrects them and he says, hey, you guys are excited about the wrong thing. You're, you're viewing power in the wrong way. He says, I want to give you a new way to think about power that's different than the way that most people in the world think about power. So, so many people in the world, right, we want to be powerful. But why do we want to be powerful? What we learn from Jesus is that true strength and true power means using your strength and using your power not to domineer, but to serve, but to help people. The purpose of power, Jesus is telling them, is to lift up those who are weak. That is what it means to love. And so now we fast forward several years later, and here we are. Paul the Apostle is writing this letter to the Christians in Rome, a city which, if characterized by any one thing, is characterized by power. It's the most powerful city and the most powerful empire in the world. And after laying out the gospel in so many chapters, the core message of Christianity, the good news about what Jesus has done for us, now Paul begins talking about, in these final few chapters, he begins talking about what that means for our lives practically, how these things that are true about Jesus, how they affect the way that we live day to day. And here in chapter 14, and now into the beginning of chapter 15, Paul talks about this, how the gospel gives us a completely different approach to power, a different approach than that which is common in the world. So many times we want power, right? So that we can say, hey, I want to be powerful so I can do whatever I want. So that no one will boss me around. So that people can't tell me what to do. So that I can make things the way that I want them. And that way I will be comfortable because I'll be able to control my environment. And that way I'll be comfortable and I'll be happy. And yet with Jesus, we see that the most powerful person who ever lived on the face of this earth, rather than being concerned with his own comfort, rather than using his power and strength for his own comfort, Rather, he sacrificed his comfort for the sake of others. Rather than insisting on his own way, he submitted himself to the will of the Father, even to the point of death. And so the question is, in light of that, in light of who he is and what he's done for us, what does that mean for how we live and how we relate to others? The title of today's message is Redefining Strength and Weakness. This is part two. We looked at part one last week in chapter 14. So this is Redefining Strength and Weakness, part two. 
And here's what we see in this chapter, three things. First of all, we see our obligation in verses 1 and 2. Secondly, we see our motivation, verses 3 through 12. And then finally, we see our reciprocation in verse 13. We'll talk about that when we get there. So let's first look at our obligation. Paul begins chapter 15 by saying this, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. He says, Let each of us please his neighbor for his own good to build him up. So this is a guiding principle that the Bible gives us for how we live our lives. If you are strong in some area, if you have power of some kind in some way, whether it's physical strength or economic strength or social influence, you are called to use those strengths not just to build yourself up or to make yourself comfortable, but you have an obligation, it says, to use those strengths in order to help those who are weak. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. I love that word compels, right? Christ's love compels us. Have you ever felt compelled to do something? It's like there's this invisible, irresistible force drawing you in or pushing you towards something that you have to do it. You know, when you really come to know the love of God, it compels you. And what does it compel you to do? Well, it compels you, the verse says, to no longer live for yourself, but to live for him. And what does it mean to live for him? It means that you, that you um, devote yourself to being an instrument through which God can accomplish his work, his mission, and his purposes. It's when you say, Lord, I'm yours. I just want to be a penny in your pocket for you to spend wherever you want and however you want. I'm no longer living for myself. I'm living for you. So take my hands, take my feet, and use them for your own purposes and for your own work to do your work in the world. So this principle is found throughout the Bible, right? That when God blesses us in some way, he doesn't just bless us so that we can be blessed. He blesses us so that we in turn can be a blessing to others. Like we see this principle, for example, in the life of Abraham, all the way back in the book of Genesis. Abraham, the father of our faith, the forefather of the Jewish nation, Abraham was just a pagan guy doing pagan stuff, living in a pagan city. He didn't know God. He didn't walk with God. But God put his hand on Abraham's life and God spoke to him. And he said, Abe, if you will take my hand and follow me, then I'm going to bless you in ways you can't even imagine. Incredible ways. And here's what God told him specifically. He said, here's how I'll bless you. I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Did you catch that? And then he goes on and says, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God's promise to Abraham is that, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Now that's great, right? I mean, who doesn't want to be blessed? We all want to be blessed, don't we? But don't miss this. The reason why God blessed Abraham wasn't just for Abraham's sake. It wasn't just so that Abraham could be a blessed guy. It was so that Abraham could be a blessing to others. It was so that he could be a conduit for God's blessing, right? You know what a conduit is. A conduit is something through which things can flow from one place to another. So it's something through which things can flow from one place to another. And that's opposed to, let's say, for example, a reservoir, which exists for a different purpose. A reservoir exists to accumulate and to hold on to something in one place. And so God's design with Abraham was that Abraham would not be a reservoir of blessing, but that he would be a conduit of blessing. He was blessed not just so he could be blessed, but so that through him, other people could be blessed, even so that God could accomplish his purposes and his mission in the world. That way, 
right? The way it says that in you, all peoples of the world will be blessed. That's speaking about Jesus ultimately, the savior of the world, the one who comes to redeem us from the curse of sin and death and give us life everlasting. But the same principle that's true about Abraham is also true about us. It's exactly what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, when he says that we who are strong have an obligation because of the gospel to lift up and to build up those who are weak and not just to please ourselves. So we are blessed, not just so we can be blessed, but so that we can be a blessing to others. We're to be conduits and not reservoirs. Now maybe you say, what's wrong with being a reservoir? Like, why are you bagging on being a reservoir? That sounds kind of nice. Like, I would actually like to be a reservoir, right? Just gather and accumulate. Sounds awesome. Now, now let me tell you why you don't want to be a reservoir, why you want to be a conduit. Think about this. Have you ever been hiking and you ran out of water? Now, maybe that hasn't happened to you, but it has happened to me. And it's probably lack of planning on my part, but I've been out hiking before and I've run out of water. Now, let's pretend, right, you don't have any kind of filtration device. There's no, no way for you to get clean water or boil water. So what do you do? Now, don't say drink your pee. I know some of you are like, well, obviously, you drink your pee. That's what you do when you run out of water. Yeah, I saw it on Bear Grylls. He did it, and he was fine. No, that's not what you do, okay? I mean, maybe, but that's not what I'm going to do. So here's what I'm going to do. Are you going to drink out of a lake, or are you going to drink out of a stream? You're always going to drink out of a stream. Why? Because standing water tends to accumulate more bacteria and microbes and all the kind of stuff that makes you sick. Running water, less so, right? And so think about it. Here's another example. We're going to Israel in the, in the spring. Looking forward to that trip. Some of us from church here are going on a trip to Israel. Now in Israel, there are two large bodies of water. In the north is the Sea of Galilee, and in the south is the Dead Sea. And both of those bodies of water are fed by the same source. Both of them are fed by the Jordan River. But the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea couldn't be more different. So the Sea of Galilee is just teeming with life. It's full of fish. There are whole communities that, that live off of fishing, that live around the lake, use the water from the Sea of Galilee, but the Dead Sea is actually the most toxic body of water on the face of the earth, like naturally toxic. And, and why? It's dead. There's nothing that lives in it. In fact, if you ingest even just a little bit of the water of the Dead Sea, it can kill you. Now, why is that? Well, here's why. Because they both have the same inlet, but they, one of them doesn't have an outlet. The Dead Sea takes in water, but it has no way to let it out. So the Sea of Galilee is like a conduit, right? Water flows in, water flows out. But the Dead Sea is a reservoir. Water comes in and it stops. There's nowhere for it to go. And as a result, it becomes toxic. And that's a picture of our lives as well. You know that, right? That if we just consume, if we just take in, if our lives are only about serving ourselves, that's exactly what happens. They become toxic. If you make it all about you, right? Like, what can this person do for me? What can this church do for me? What can I get out of this? What's in it for me? If all you do is take in and make it about you, but you're not giving out and serving others and giving, what you, giving from what you've received, if you're a reservoir instead of a conduit, then you become sick. You become toxic. And so whatever we've been blessed with, in whatever areas you are strong, we have an obligation because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done for us, to use that strength not merely for building up ourselves, but for building up others and serving those who are weak. So if it's in the areas of finance, right, we're called to use our money 
the resources God has given us, not only for ourselves, but the things we've been given by God, we're, we're to use them in order to do the work of God. Now, that might mean helping individuals in need. It might mean supporting ministries who are doing great gospel-centered work in different sectors. It might mean using your money to do missional things in your neighborhood or reaching out to your neighbors. But the point is this. We are to use what we've been given, not just for ourselves and for our own sakes, not just to serve ourselves or please ourselves, but in order to do God's work and for the good of others. Or maybe you don't have any money, but you're strong in other ways, right? In relationships or in influence or physical strength or time or knowledge. However you are blessed, we have an obligation because of the gospel to not just use those things for ourselves, but to use them for other people to build them up where they are weak. So that's our obligation, verses 1 and 2. Let me also bring your attention to one other thing, right? We, this section here, chapter 15, verses 1 through 13, it's really a continuation of the discussion which began in chapter 14, which was all about, again, redefining strength and weakness and how the gospel shapes our relationships and how we relate to other people. But here's one really big difference between chapter 14 and chapter 15 in this regard. Like, so part 1 that we looked at last week and part 2 that we look at this week. In chapter 14, Paul uses the word brothers, right? So he talks about how the gospel shapes how we relate to brothers. And here in chapter 15, Paul uses a different word. He uses the word neighbor. Now you can actually follow throughout the whole Bible that these two words, brother and neighbor, are used to refer to two different groups of people throughout the Bible. The, the people come to Jesus and they ask him, Jesus, tell me, who is my neighbor, right? Because we're told to love your neighbor as yourself. And they say, okay, well, define for me, who is my neighbor? And you'll see other times when he talks about if a brother sins against you, here's how you are to react. So here's, here's how that breaks down. Brother, throughout the Bible, refers to other believers, fellow believers, other Christians in our case. And neighbor refers to any and all human beings. And so that's these two categories. But that, what that means is this, that chapter 14 is focused on how we relate to other Christians. That was our study last week when it comes to disagreements and disputable matters and, and things where we don't see eye to eye. But chapter 15 is focused on how we relate to all people and how we're to use the strengths that God has given us to bless and serve them. So what he's teaching us here, again, is something that's radically different. It's countercultural to our day and age. He's teaching us to be outwardly focused people, people who understand that we are on a mission. And our mission isn't just to serve ourselves. It's about something much bigger than us. Now, any mission has to have a motivation. So we see starting in verse 3, Paul shifts from talking about our obligation to talking about our motivation. Verse 3 says this, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus is both our example and our motivation. Right? The eternal Son of God, who is fully deserving of all things. The Bible says that all things exist by him and all things exist for him. So he's deserving of all things, and yet he did not live to please himself. He did not come to be served. He came to serve. Paul says, the reproaches of those who fell or the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Here he's quoting from Psalm 69. And by applying this psalm to Jesus, here's what he's doing. Paul's pointing out that Jesus was willing to be mocked, beaten, crucified, killed by those who were the enemies of God. And he did it in order to serve us, in order to serve those around him. In other words, when Jesus came to this earth, when he lived his life, he lived his life in service to other people even though it wasn't comfortable for him, even though it involved pain and hardship and sacrifice, he did it for us 
because of his love for us. In other words, his life wasn't motivated, wasn't driven by a desire or a seeking for his own comfort or pleasure, but by a radical devotion to the will of God and a desire to serve us even though it came at great cost to him. So Jesus is both our example and our motivation for living this new way. He compels us to live our lives to serve others in a commitment to doing the will of God. What this looks like in practice, for example, means this, that as a Christian, when you walk into a room, you don't come in with the, with the same attitude that you used to, right? You come in with a different attitude. You don't ask when you enter the room, are these the kind of people that I want to be around? Are these the kind of people that I want to be seen with? Are these the kind of people that I would enjoy? Rather, we ask a different question. We come into a room and we ask, how can I build up these people? Whom might I be able to serve in some way? It means we don't just seek out people who are able to build us up or pour into us, but we look not only to who can benefit us, we look at people and we're willing to spend time with people who are draining. Have you met those people as energy vampires, right? They just suck it right out of you. But he says, no, we're willing to spend time with people who are draining, those who are hard to be around, those who are hard to love. Now, why would we do that? Who would want to do that? The answer is this. We do that because that is exactly what Jesus has done for us. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. I love what he says. He says, Christ did not receive us because we were perfect or because he could see no fault in us or because he hoped to gain somewhat at our hands. Ah, no. But in loving condescension, covering our faults and seeking our good, he welcomed us to his heart. And so in the same way, with the same purpose, let us receive one another. I've been reading a book called Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Maybe some of you have read it. It was on the New York Times bestseller list. And in that book, he's talking about justice. And what he says is this. I thought it was very good. He says, the true measure of the character of a society cannot be measured by how we treat the rich, the powerful, the privileged, and the respected among us. The true measure of our character is how we treat the disfavored. And that's exactly what this text here in Romans 15 is calling us to. Rather than living to please ourselves, rather than living, looking for who can do what for us, we're called to follow the example of Jesus, fueled by the motivation of Jesus' love and what he's done for us. And we are to live our lives, not to please ourselves, but to do the work of God by serving and building up others. But think about that. What, what does this mean? What does that look like in practice? What does it actually mean in practice to serve and build up others? What does it mean? Does it mean to take care of people's physical needs? Or does it mean to take care of their spiritual needs? Well, of course, the answer is both, right? The Bible gives us a holistic view of people. We're not just physical beings, nor are we just spiritual beings. But we are physical and spiritual. We are embodied spirits. And so the Bible gives us a holistic approach to serving people and building them up that's both spiritual and physical. So God's desire, and ultimately the reason Jesus came, was so that we who suffer under the curse of sin and death might be set free from the effects of sin and death. Now, sin and, and death, the curse that we're under, it has physical effects, and of course it has spiritual ramifications. And so we seek to bring the gospel into people's lives and minister to all of people's needs, both their spiritual needs and their physical needs. But here's one thing that's worth noting in that regard, that, that while the Bible does say that right, we are embodied spirits, so we have physical needs and we have spiritual needs, and they're both important, and to minister to a person means to minister to both. The Bible, we should recognize that the Bible does give priority to spiritual needs, so, for example, the Bible says things like, it would be better to enter into eternal life with only one hand, maimed, than it would be to enter 
holy well into uh, hell with two hands and holy well, right? Or it says things like, what does it benefit a person if they gain the whole world and yet lose their own soul? And so while we seek to have a holistic approach to serving people and building them up, we do keep this in mind that at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, if all we ever give people is physical help, if we don't also reach out to their greater need, their spiritual need to be reconciled to God and have their soul redeemed, then, then we have fallen short in helping them. But if, on the other hand, we point people to Jesus, and then even in their physical condition, if their physical condition never improves in this life, they have the hope, they have the guarantee that in the life to come, all that is wrong will be made right. And so we take a holistic approach, but we don't neglect the spiritual side. In verse 4, Paul says this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Here in this one verse, Paul tells us three very important things about the Scripture, how we should view the Scripture, what should our attitude be as we think about the Bible. So three things. Number one, he tells us that the Scriptures are applicable for us today. He says everything that was written in the past was written in order to teach us. So whatever part of the Bible you're reading, whether it's, it's a psalm, whether it's a story, whether it's history, understand this, it was written and inspired and recorded by God here in the scriptures in order to teach you. And every bit of it has lessons and applications that we can apply to our lives today. Secondly, the scriptures are centered on Jesus. Paul showed us that by applying Psalm 69 to Jesus and saying, ultimately, this speaks of Jesus. In other words, if you really want to understand the Bible, you need to understand this, that the Bible is not just a bunch of random stories that give us some insight into God. Rather, it is one story which at its heart is all about Jesus. And thirdly, here's what it teaches us about the Bible, that when properly understood, the scriptures increase our sense of hope. So when properly understood, the scriptures in increase our sense of hope. Here in the scriptures, what we have, we have God's promises to us about what he is doing and what he will do. And because we know the end of the story now, because we know that God is working even when he seems silent, even when he seems absent, that he's working providentially and sovereignly, it gives us incredible hope in the midst of whatever circumstances we are facing. It enables us to live with so much endurance. We're able to press on even when things are hard. In verses 5 and 6 that we read, we see that Paul prays for the Christians that they might have unity. Two things to note about this prayer. First of all, he mentions that we are unified by following Jesus. So we're unified by following Jesus. And secondly, here's the other thing he tells us, that when we act in unity... As Christians, we bring glory to God. When we act in unity, we bring glory to God. Now, verse 7 goes on to tell us that the basis for our unity as Christians is that we have been accepted by Jesus. So when you really come to understand the gospel, it absolutely changes the way that you relate to other people. Because here's why. Because when you know that you've been accepted by Jesus, in spite of your faults, in spite of your sins, it sets you free to accept other people in spite of their sins, in spite of their faults. See, knowing that you're accepted by God, it sets you free also from the feeling that you need to compete with other people or you need to prove yourself that you're, you're better than them or that you, you're competing with them. Some of you, maybe you can relate to that. You're competitive people. You feel like you have this constant need to prove yourself. And it makes you feel significant when you can show that you're better than others at certain things. But here's what happens when you come to understand the gospel. 
when you understand that you're accepted by God in Christ because of Jesus, because of what he did for you, it sets you free from the need to constantly prove yourself and the need to compete with others. You no longer look at others with a need to put other people down so that you can make yourself look better because you are so secure in knowing that God has accepted you in Christ. The message of the gospel is that God knows you fully. He knows everything about you, every secret thought, every secret deed, and yet he loves you completely. You know, many people believe that they can either be fully known or fully loved, but not both, right? Because if someone were to fully know you, everything about you, every secret, every thought you've ever had, surely they couldn't possibly love you. They'd have to reject you. But the message of the gospel is that God, the one who knows you even better than you know yourself, he knows everything about you, every flaw, every failing, and yet in spite of that, he loves you completely. He loves you so much that he became one of us and gave himself for you. And when you really get that, here's what it does. It sets you free because it gives you so much confidence, so much security. You don't have to look down on other people. You don't have to compete with other people. You can be secure in who you are in him. And it sets you free to be unified with other people. Here's the other thing. God's love for us, though, he, he, he loves us where we're at, but he doesn't leave us where we're at. He loves us. He doesn't love us because we are good and perfect, but he loves us in a way that makes us better. He loves us in a way that makes us better. He accepts us as we are and where we are, but he doesn't leave us there. He loves us enough to work in our lives, to transform what's broken in us in order to make us into something great and something beautiful. And that's a model for us as well in how we love people because, you know, one of the fears that people have as they read this section that says, hey, don't live to please yourself, live to please other people. They say, well, how, if I do that though, aren't I opening myself up to being a doormat that other people are gonna take advantage of me and use me and walk all over me and the, the weaker people will dictate my life. I won't be able to do anything I want because somebody won't like it. And the answer is no. That's not how this is supposed to work. See, we're called to live like Jesus did and love like Jesus has loved us. And what that means is meeting people where they're at, but lifting them up and helping them not to stay where they're at if they're in a bad place, helping them to get stronger and, and to grow. One author put it this way. He said, A genuine concern for the weak will mean an attempt to lead them out of their scruples so that they too can be strong. So genuine concern for the weak means helping them become strong and move away from those weaknesses. In verses 8 through 12 then, Paul goes on and he quotes four Old Testament passages which all talk about God's plan, how God's plan has always been throughout all of the Old Testament, all of the Hebrew Bible, it's always been to include Gentiles, which are non-Jews, in his chosen people. Now, we saw back in chapters 9 through 11 when we talked about understanding Israel, one of the big questions that the Christians in Rome had is a question that many people today also have and struggle with, which is this. How is it that like in the Old Testament, it seems like the Jews are God's chosen people, but now we look around the world and there are a lot of Jews who don't follow Jesus. Many of them are atheists. You know, many reject Jesus if they're not atheists. And many Christians are not from Jewish background. And so how does that work if the Jews are God's chosen people and now it seems that they're doing something else? And Paul is reminding them that throughout the Old Testament, God consistently promised that his plan was to save people from all nations. The Jews, like we've been talking about throughout this study, they were blessed not just for their own sake. That was the mistake they made. They thought they were blessed just for their own sake. And he says, I blessed you so that you can be a blessing, so that through you, 
all nations of the earth can be blessed. And so here's an interesting thing about these four passages that Paul quotes here in this section. They come from all three parts of the Old Testament scriptures. So the Old Testament in the Jewish mind is broken up into three parts. You have the law, the prophets, and the writings, which are like the Psalms and the Proverbs. So the law, the prophets, and the writings. And we see that these verses come, they're taken from each of those three sections. So verses 9 and 11, the Old Testament quotations come from the Psalms. In verse 10, it comes from the law. And in verse 11, it comes from the prophets. And so the, the point is this, to show us that all of the Old Testament testified to God's plan of salvation for people from all over the world, not only for the Jewish people. In other words, God didn't change his plan at some point. This has been the plan all along. And finally, in this third section, we see the reciprocation, verses 4 and 5, and then in verse 13. In verse 13, Paul says this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So in verses 4 and 5, and then in verse 13, we see that there are a couple of words that are repeated over and over. They're repeated, they're used. And what we see here is that there's this kind of reciprocal cycle. Now we all know what it's like to be in a vicious cycle, right? Maybe you've been in a vicious cycle in your life where one bad thing fuels another bad thing, which fuels another bad thing, and just in this downward spiral. But what we have here is really just the opposite of that. What we have here is a beautiful upward cycle of hope where one thing fuels the next that spirals upward, fueling itself as it increases in hope and joy. Verse 4 talks about how Scripture gives us hope. And that hope gives us endurance. The hope gives us the motivation and the strength to press on and keep going. And verse 5 talks about how God gives us endurance through encouragement. Verse 13 talks about joy and peace and believing so that we can have even more hope. And again, it's this upward spiral, this beautiful cycle where one thing fuels the next. We read the scriptures, they give us hope, so we serve others, which gives us joy. The scriptures give us joy. It's this upward cycle as we do these things that lead us upward until the point where we're overflowing with hope and joy and peace. And remember, this is all seated in a section which is calling us to live in a radically countercultural way. Instead of being self-focused, we're called to be serving others and carrying out God's mission as Jesus did for us. Now, being self-focused, it's such a part of our human nature. But here in our society in America, particularly here in the West, we live in perhaps the most radically individualistic society in the world, perhaps the most individualistic society that has ever existed in the history of the world. You can see it, for example, like in the titles of magazines, like if you look over the past 60 years. First, we start out with Life Magazine. Okay, great start, right? Life Magazine, that's, that's what we're doing. We're doing life. Okay, then next we had Time Magazine. Now, time is part of life, but it's not all of life. And then after that, we had People Magazine. Now, people are part of time, which is part of life, but it's not all of time, and it's not all of life. And then we moved on from having People Magazine to having Us Magazine. Now, Us is part of people, but it's not all of people. And then we moved on from Us magazine to having Self magazine, which is part of us, but not all of us. And you can see this trajectory that we've been on where we're moving more and more and more towards this individualism and toward this me-focused society. And in spite of that, the Bible is giving us this radical call to live like Jesus and be motivated by Jesus, not to please ourselves, but to lift up others with the strength that God has given us. Now, again, some of you might look at this and you might say, well, this sounds very noble, 
but I'm not sure I want to be a noble martyr, right? Like, I'm not sure I want to live that way. I'm not sure I want to miss out on fun, right? Like, I'm afraid that if I live that way, I'll be a, a noble martyr, and I'll be able to pat myself on the back for, you know, sacrificing for the sake of others, but I won't be happy if I just live my life in service of others. I, I mean, isn't self-care, isn't self-love, isn't that stuff important? I mean, where does all that fit into this? You know, there's an interesting passage in the Gospel of John, chapter 17. It's just after the Lord's Supper. They've finished their meal. Jesus has shared with them that the time has come, that within hours he's going to be arrested. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be taken off, and he's going to be crucified and put to death. After this Last Supper, as there's this kind of somber mood, the disciples are not happy to hear this. Jesus says, you know what, let me pray for you guys. And the prayer that Jesus prayed, you can imagine how much that prayer would have just been burned into the minds of those people who heard their Savior pray over them that night after the Last Supper before he was crucified. And there in that prayer, before they go for their final walk where Jesus is going to be betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays for them. And in his prayer, one of the things he says is this. He says, Father, these disciples of mine, I want them to have the same joy that I have. And the reason I have that joy, he says, is because you have given me your mission. And so in order that they might have the joy that I have, I am passing on to them the mission that you gave me. See, what Jesus says there in John chapter 17 is really important for how we view our lives and how we live. What he's saying there is this, that joy is inextricably tied to and dependent on mission. In other words, you cannot have joy unless you have a mission. And if you have a mission, then you will have joy. But you must have a mission which is bigger than yourself. And see, so many people in this world, they don't have that. They don't have any mission, anything that's worth living for and dying for that's more than themselves. It's more than living for their own personal fulfillment and satisfaction and pleasure. And as a result, so many people are lacking in joy. See, here's the irony of life. Everyone wants to be happy. Of course we want to be happy. We should want to be happy. Everyone wants to have joy in their life. But here's the irony of happiness and joy. It's not something you can get by pursuing it directly. If you go out this afternoon and say, okay, from now on, I'm going to pursue making myself happy, you will end up miserable. So many people have done it. Just look, read the books, look at, for it yourself. The irony is this, the more you live for yourself, the more you focus on yourself, the more miserable you will be. But if you have a mission, something that really matters, something that's truly worth living for and dying for, something that's bigger than just yourself and pleasing yourself, if you pursue that, if you live for it, even to the point of sacrificing for it, then you will have joy. See, there's no mission that is more important, that is more worthy of giving your life for than the mission for which Jesus gave his life for, the, the mission which living wholeheartedly for the mission of God, Jesus' own mission, which he has imparted to us that we might have his same joy as we pursue his same mission. And so the idea here is this, that the hope that we have in Jesus, it drives us to take up the mission we've been given by Jesus to serve others, which in turn causes us to have even more joy. And that joy, what does it do? It drives us back to Jesus, the source of our hope. And that hope pushes us back towards the mission, which results in even more joy, and so on and so on in this upward, upward reciprocal spiral of joy and hope until it's just overflowing out of our lives and it can flow towards other people. Don't you want that? I want that. I know that I do. So today, in conclusion, let me just encourage you in this. 
Don't live to please yourself, but instead look to Jesus and what he has done for you. And let that be your motivation and your example that you might use your strengths that God has given you to build other people up so that they might become strong and experience life abundantly and everlasting. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it testifies of the gospel, Lord, the good news of what you have done for us. Jesus, thank you that you did not seek your own pleasure when you lived, but you lived for us. You gave yourself for us, sacrificing, Lord, may we live for your mission in that same way. Lord, that we might have your same joy. Lord, forgive us for those areas where we have uh, just lived to please ourselves, where we have looked to ourselves, Lord, and tried to make ourselves happy by, by trying to go after it directly and do what pleases us. Lord, may we see that joy is something that is only achieved by having a mission that really matters. And thank you, Lord, that you have given us the one mission which truly matters. May we live it out for your glory and for our joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.